Take your Bible and open the Word of God. Open it to John chapter 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 21 and work my way down to verse 26. John chapter 14. The Lord says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you and to open your word, and we do pray the direction of the Holy Spirit upon us as we open... uh, Uh, your word and listen uh, to John through him uh, the things that you'd have us hear from the mouth of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ so again we're thankful for that opportunity and again we pray for our brothers in in uh, in Russia especially for Rick and we pray for a a resolution and a release and then uh, perhaps it be your will that you would send him back but if not give him strength and courage may be a great witness to you Uh, to the task that you've called him to do at this moment, we pray. Go before us this hour in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have a great privilege again of looking uh, into God's word here in opening chapter 14. Uh, It really is an incredible portion uh, of scripture. It's really meant to bless uh, and encourage our hearts. Uh, Again, you'll remember it's the night before the crucifixion. Uh, The Lord has announced to his disciples he's about to leave them. And he's giving them instructions because he loves them. He wants them to understand the provisions, the spiritual provisions that he's made for them in his absence uh, because he knows that they're anxious in spirit uh, because of his imminent departure. And again, they just can't comprehend what the Lord is telling him, the fact that, again, he's going to be leaving them. In just a few minutes or a few moments uh, in um, uh, the chronology of things in chapter 16, uh, the Lord says, But I tell you the truth that it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, again, at that moment, they can't understand what he's saying. Uh, but again, he's told them to stop being anxious. He's told them to simply believe the truth, believe God, believe him, believe that he has made provision for them. And again, as I just said, that's always a task before each and every one of us, to believe what God says to be true, to trust God, to trust Christ, to walk by faith and not by sight. I think deep down within inside of all of us, if we're honest, I think there's a certain sense. We probably at some point have said how great it would have been to be present when Christ was here physically on the earth. If we could have just had a physical relationship with him like they did, if we could have just seen him, how much better off our lives would be, how much more confident our life would be. But the Lord says that's not true. We say that to ourselves, but the Lord says that's not true. The Lord says it's really a suppression of the truth. He says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. And if I go away, if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So these men who are standing in the presence of Christ have a certain great privilege, obviously, but we have even a better advantage than they do, or that they did at that moment. So before these 11... Uh, men, these 11 disciples that are left with Christ in the upper room, he says, look, it's to your advantage that depart. I know you don't understand it at the moment, but you will. It's to your advantage. Because when I leave, then I'll send the helper. I'll send the advocate, the comforter. I'll send the person of the Holy Spirit. The one whom Christ has promised not to be just with us, but to be in us. The one who's going to come and take up the residence within us, to dwell within us, once we come to saving faith, and the text says that he will be there, Christ says he'll be within us forever. The one who will indwell us as believers. That's the truth. Again, the truth is that once you come to saving faith, once you repent and place your faith in Christ, the triune God lives within you. 
triune God dwells within every genuine believer. Therefore, every genuine believer is in a constant, unending, eternal communion with the Godhead. Now, again, that's a truth that's almost beyond our comprehension. I understand that just like God himself or even the Trinity is almost beyond our comprehension, but it's what Christ says. This wonderful truth of this relationship with, with the triune God. Uh, again, I referenced it last time from the hymn writer. It says, we can scarce take in the fact that Christ would die on our place, take our sin upon him on Calvary's cross, burden, bearing the, the burden of our punishment. But the fact is, not only has provided for the forgiveness of our sins and provided us reconciliation, uh, and, and uh, not just reconciliation at a distance, but again, he's brought us into his very family. We have now an intimate relationship with God, adopted into God's family as his children. The great truth is that reality that we have that kind of relationship with God, who has dwelt, promised to dwell within us. Because the truth of Christianity is it goes much further than just intellectual exercise. It goes much further than just believing or adhering to a certain set of doctrinal truths. That's part of it. We do believe in certain propositional doctrinal truths. But at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is that we enter into a personal relationship with the triune God through faith in Christ by way of his atoning death and his resurrection through the permanent indwelling of the third member of the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit. That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I think in a lot, uh, a lot of our times we think, well, I, I got that to a certain extent. I don't really fig- can't really figure it out, but I got it. In glory in the future, uh, I'm going to be in the presence of, of, of God in Christ. But, but Christ says, no, look, this is something that's a present reality now for every person who, who's a genuine believer. Again, it's an utterly profound truth, this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fact that the triune God comes and lives and dwells in in every believer. That we're in a constant, unending, eternal communion with the Godhead. That ought to affect the way we live our day. That ought to affect the way we live life. That ought to affect the way we deal with problems and situations and issues. That remembrance that we're not alone. Now stop and consider one of the major themes of the Bible. All men are created by God in his image. Therefore, we are all created to have fellowship with our creator. Fellowship with God. book of Genesis says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. They had fellowship, right? They, God, uh, Adam enjoyed God's existence. He enjoyed, enjoyed his presence. He enjoyed his kindness, his love. Westminster Confession of Faith, if you're familiar with that, says it aptly. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God in what? Enjoy him forever. That's what God meant. That's God's designed purpose, God's end for mankind and his relationship to enjoy him. But then we know, of course, sadly, the fall came. Man rebelled against God. The fellowship was broken. God drove the man and the woman from the garden from his presence, he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden to prevent man from entering back into the garden and uh, taking from the tree of life in his fallen condition. And as man developed, he spread all over the face of the earth. And with him, because he's infected with sin, sin spread all over the face of the earth. But God, because of his nature, God, because of his character, God, because he's a loving, redeeming, reconciling God, the story of the Bible as, it's, as it unfolds is really one unfolding story, Old Testament into the New Testament, of God's process of reconciliation, God's process of redeeming, God's process of gathering people to himself that would again once more be fit to be in his presence, a people that he could have a relationship with, that a people who could have a relationship, a right relationship with him uh, once again. A people uh, prepared for heaven, uh, prepared for glory, prepared for eternity. And if you were to fast forward to the end of the book, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to fast forward to the end of the book, to the book of the Revelation, that's exactly what's going to happen. Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, 
Listen, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them and shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. Now, where have you heard that before? The beginning of this book, right? John chapter 1. That's a reference to the presence of Christ. John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14 of John chapter 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word, tabernacle. Same word as Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Because the only way to have this relationship restored that was broken at the fall, the only way that reconciliation can be made through uh, uh, between God and man is, is through this person, Jesus Christ. Romans 3 and 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son. Reconciliation only happens through the person who, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ, God is going to be absolutely successful in his plan to again redeem and reconcile men and women from all tribes and tongues and people to himself. People who will come and dwell with him both spiritually, physically, uh, uh, in communion with him, communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, communion with the Holy Spirit in glory forever, all throughout eternity. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's the ultimate program of God, to redeem fallen men and women who will live with God eternally, forever praising him for the glory of his grace, forever worshiping and adoring and expressing uh, their love to him and to the Son who reconciled them and purchased that uh, reconciled relationship and granted them that ability to live in the presence of God and Christ forever. So again, the only way that a person can be reconciled, the only way that a person can have fellowship with the living God is through the Redeemer, the Messiah, again, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes and lives a life, puts on our flesh, lives a perfect life, dies as a perfect sacrifice, becomes the sin bearer. Through his death, man is reconciled with God. Man and God are reunited. Just as God intended for men at the very beginning, man in union with God, man in real relationship with God. Colossians 1.19, Paul says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity, really, for all the fullness to dwell in him, to dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order, here's the reason, in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's the picture of the love of God for fallen mankind. That's the character, the nature of God. That's the same God that says in, Christ says in John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's the picture. Again, that's the understanding of the love that God has for men. And again, it's seen in part in, in this upper room discourse because the Lord is preparing these men for the day of his departure, the day of his absence. He, he's telling them that, that he's going away and they can't follow him, at least not yet, not at this moment. But he wants them to be absolutely certain, absolutely sure of his love for them. That he's not going to leave them alone. He's promised that he's going to come. He's going to bring them into an intimate union, an intimate, unbroken fellowship and relationship with him. And the other members of the Godhead. And again, it's not just something that's for the future, which again he will do as we read in the book of the Revelation. But it's something for the present. It's something for time. Something for now. And again, I think we need to get a grasp on that truth. That wonderful truth. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means 
to really enter into that personal relationship, that union with Christ, to be united with Christ. In fact, it really means to be united with all the members of the Godhead. Because, again, the fact is within every genuine born-again Christian, by way of the Scripture, by way of the proclamation of Christ, the Trinity lives within us. The Trinity lives within every genuine believer. Again, every genuine believer, every one of us in the room who are repented and placed our faith in Christ, we're in a constant, unending, eternal communion with the Godhead. That's the point. It's the point of the text. That's the point of what Christ is doing with them at this moment. It's to your advantage that I leave. This is why. Understand the truth. Believe the truth. I mean, how many times do we hear something and we go, yeah, 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 I got it. And we really don't get it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a thousand and a thousand and first time, then we get it. Oh, I never heard that before. I mean, we all do that, right? We, we listen because we, atten- we don't pay attention to what we listen to. He's begging these men. He's begging us. He's giving us the privilege to do what these men didn't have. These men didn't sit. These men are these men are running through this whole thing in real time, and all these events are happening, right? And they're living a real life. They didn't have the privilege at that time to sit down and rehash it like we do each and every week to get to the point. Again, you're not alone. I'm not going to leave you. You're not left. I'm not left. We're all not left to fight this life on our own. In our own power, in our own strength. Because by way of the promise of Christ, we've been given a supernatural presence. Supernatural being who lives within us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit reside within each and every believer. That's what Christ tells his followers here. That's why he says at the top of the chapter, let not your heart be troubled. You'll never be alone. And I honestly think that's why anxiety for the believer is such a great sin. Thought about that. Should I put that in there? I thought, yeah, I do. I should, because we really need to call it what it is. Anxiety for the believer is a great sin. It's something that needs to be repented of, something that needs to be confessed in the light of the truth. Because the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 28, verse 20, Lo, I am with you. When? Always. Always. Lo, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. That's the truth. As Francis Schaeffer would say, that's true truth. And I say it often from this pulpit, but we need to speak to ourselves the truth, not listen to ourselves. We need to speak the truth to ourselves and not listen to ourselves. When we're tempted to self-pity, tempted to believe that no one cares, tempted to feel that we're all alone. And again, I think that's a common feeling amongst believers. But that feeling is not truth. That feeling is not reality. The feeling is false. That's why we can't trust our feelings. The truth is you're never alone. One writer put it like this, to the fact that we're never alone ever He says, at work, at school, in the hospital facing death, yours or a loved one, or even standing over a fresh grave, we are never alone. Even when we don't feel Christ's presence, the promise is that he is within us. He is with us. Lo, I am with you always. To the end of the age, right? Even to the end of the age, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Hebrews 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. We've got to stop listening to ourselves, and we've got to start speaking to ourselves the truth, and always the truth. And then we've got to start believing and practicing and living theologically the truth, we say we believe in. Now, not only is this portion of Scripture speaking about that truth, speaking about the truth of the Trinity within us, but it's also going to speak about the role of the Holy Spirit who leads us into that truth. We're not going to get quite as far this morning as I hope to get, but we will eventually, Lord willing. But, but the greatest gift that God could ever give us is this book. Right? It's a treasure. 
Uh, we talk about it often here. Men have literally given their life blood that you might have a possession of the scripture in a language that you can understand. It's the greatest truth or, or the greatest gift that God could ever give the world His truth. Divine revelation. Truth about us. Truth about him. Truth about time and eternity. Truth about life. Truth about origins. Death. Truth about the consummation of all things. Truth about the judgment to come. Truth about heaven. Truth about hell. The greatest gift that God could ever give men in his truth. Because we can't come to a knowledge of the truth on our own. We need divine revelation. We need help. And again, the greatest gift that God has given to men who are desperately in need of help is his truth. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a world full of lies. We live in a world full of liars, a world full of deception, promoted by fallen men, demons, fallen angels. The entire world is held captive to the lies of Satan, who is the father of lies. And the only thing that can help a trapped, duped, lied to being uh, flee from darkness and the blackness of the lies of the evil one and the darkness of their own unrepentant, unregenerate, fallen heart is the truth. And we're going to see that as we work our way towards the end of what I read at the top of the hour and just a bit in part as we work our way through these uh, concluding verses. So again, this is just a tremendously packed portion of Scripture. We slow down and really look at it. Packed with theological truth. But again, we need to listen to, believe, and then practically embrace and live by those truths. Now, let's just kind of do a quick overview. All right? Remember the whole thing. When did it begin? Don't turn there, but it actually began back in chapter 13, if you remember this part we're looking into. Right? It was just before the feast of the Passover. It says there that Jesus knew his hour was to come, that he was going to depart out of this world to be with the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, this is out of his love for them. He knows he's leaving. He wants them to be encouraged by the truth. Jesus knew the Father had given all things into his hands, and he'd come forth from God and was going back. He knows it's time. He says, little children, I'm with you a little longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. He's going back to the Father. It's what he says, John 14, verse 12. I go to the Father. Chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's leaving. Again, he's been with these men for the past three years. Uh, They've been with him also. They've left everything to follow him. They've been together for uh, uh, the last three years every single day. Left again everything to follow him. Now they're having a very difficult time processing what he's telling them. They're having a very difficult time processing the whole thing because he's leaving. And that doesn't fit in with their messianic expectations. But you'll remember through this text, the Lord just keeps piling up, piling up, piling up, one encouraging promise after another. Again, he wants them to know that after his departure, when they they no longer see him, he wants them to know that he's still there. He's still in charge. He's still caring for them. Uh, He still loves them. Again, he's told them not to be troubled. He's told them to believe God, believe in him. He says, look, there's going to be a future day, a wonderful day of reunion in my father's house. Lots of room. He's told them that he's the only way, in fact, the only legitimate way to the father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. He's reaffirmed his deity. He's reaffirmed the fact that his work on earth is going to continue even after it departs. He's told them, look, the gap between me and you, the gap between heaven and earth is instantaneously closed by prayer. And then he defines who these promises are for. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Again, true followers of Christ eagerly, joyfully respond to Christ in obedience. Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't you do anything, the one who has laid down his life in your place and took the punishment that you're supposed to bear? Why wouldn't you? do anything and everything he asked and you do it out of love because he loved you verse 16 I'll ask the father he'll give you another helper remember another one just like me is really what it says a divine helper the Holy Spirit he's going to come he's going to help he's going to help in all things he's going to help always 
Who is this person? And we spent some time looking at that, the deity, the personality of the Holy Spirit. Not a power source that we plug into. The moment that you are saved, you are filled with the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. We don't need more of him. We have all of him we need. What we need to do is understand the truth and understand who he is and understand his presence. And look again the, the, the individual personal nature of the promise that Christ makes. I will ask my father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Again, permanently, not just temporarily, but always. So again, Christ says, look, I'm going to go away, but the Holy Spirit's coming, therefore you'll never be, never be alone. He says, look, it's going to be in time exactly as it's going to be in eternity future. In time, you'll never be alone. You're going to have a perfect, forever, permanent relationship with God. In heaven, yes, but that promise is for us now by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. The promises start, again, the moment we believe. The moment we repent and place our faith in Christ and come from death to life and are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, it begins on a practical level at that moment. Well, who is this helper? Verse 17. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And as I said last time, of course the world can't receive him. He's holy. They're not. He's truth. They're a bunch of liars. The spirit whom the world cannot receive Receive because it does not behold him or know him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Again, the whole world is deceived. They don't know the truth. They can't comprehend the truth. The whole world, apart from Christ, the whole world is under delusion and the control of the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself, who's a murderer. Satan himself, who's a liar. I I referenced it last time, but but I want you to look there. So just turn back. I want you to see it for yourself. Just turn back a couple pages to John chapter 8. It's a vitally important portion of Scripture that shows exactly where the leaders of Judaism were at the present time, at the time when Christ was incarnate. He's speaking to them, but by way of implication to all unbelievers. John 8, verse 37. Jesus speaking says, I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Here is why. Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come in my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is because you cannot hear my word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in the truth. And because there's no truth in him, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. True of the religious leaders of Israel at the time, true of all unbelievers, the whole world apart from Christ. The whole world apart from Christ believes the lies of the evil one. They don't know the truth. They can't understand the truth. They can't hear the truth with any kind of comprehension or understanding. They do not have that ability. In part, what we're seeing in the world, we're seeing more and more of that divide. 
more and more of those who have rejected Christ, the crazy uh, rejection, who believe the lies. Again, it doesn't matter what lie you believe as long as you don't believe the truth. You can believe that a man can have a baby. You, you can believe that presto changeo, somebody can change their gender. As long as you believe a lie, as long as you keep repeating the lie, you will be loved by the culture. When you stand up and say that is not true, you are a man, you are a woman. Women have babies, not men. You will come under attack because the prince of the power of the air works in the sons of disobedience to cause rebellion. And one of the ways that rebellion takes place is you take over the language and you start redefining it exactly as we're seeing. The world doesn't, apart from Christ, believes anything but the truth. The world can't hear the truth. Because the world has a different father. One who doesn't stand in the truth. And every time he speaks, he speaks from his own nature. He's a father of lies and he is a murderer. But not so for the believer. Again, back to our text, back in John 14. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know him or behold him. Then he goes on and says, but you know him. You know him because he abides in you. He dwells. He resides. He's Again, it's a present active indicative. This is a statement of fact presently. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be future tense in you. Again, before the cross, time of Pentecost hasn't come. That's what it means. He's with you now, but he's going to be in you. So again, he's in, <clears throat> the Lord's encouraging his men on a night where they're pretty discouraged. And again, they're going to get a whole lot more discouraged as the whole thing unfolds. He's encouraging them that they're not alone. He's reminding them that God is for them, that God is with them, uh, that the present activity of the Holy Spirit is among them. Because that's the truth about God's people always. In fact, that's why they're following him. That's why they're following the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of the Holy Spirit's internal soul work. It's the Holy Spirit who is guiding them to the person of the truth. It's drawn them to truth incarnate. Uh, Christ in John 6 and 44 says, no one comes to the Father unless the, or no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, again, they're already the recipients of, of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They're following the truth incarnate. It's the Holy Spirit who's uh, uh, guiding them to a proper understanding of him, a proper, deeper relationship with him, with the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus Christ is reminding them of the Holy Spirit's present active uh, activity in their work already, in their life already. And then he says, one day again, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to permanently indwell. He will be in you. Again, that's a unique work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era. It's part of the New Covenant promises uh, one of the things that distinguishes the Old and the New Covenant. Uh, promises that God gave through the prophet, Ezekiel thirty six twenty seven. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. As I mentioned previously, the role of the Holy Spirit has changed somewhat from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. His uh, uh, essential person, character, deity uh, uh, remains the same. He's the same spirit, but now he permanently indwells permanently in union with each and every individual believer. That's got to be an encouragement to you. Has to be. I mean, the great privilege we have of being the recipients of God's great grace and kindness, not only in the forgiveness of our sin, but he would put his very essence within us. We would have a supernatural helper, again, not just with us, but in us. Every moment of our existence, once we come to faith in Christ, Every moment of our existence throughout all of time and then into eternity, the abiding presence of God himself. One writer puts it like this. He says, one of the most encouraging facts of Christianity is that the comforter not only comes alongside, but comes inside us. One of the most devastating thoughts anyone can ever entertain is when he's going through trouble is, I'm alone. And then after that comes self-pity and then the thought no one cares. He says these are common feelings but unnecessary for the believer. Why is it unnecessary for the believer? Because it's not the truth. It's not the truth. We're never alone. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. It literally means fatherless. 
or phanos. I will not leave you fatherless, bereft of a father. And again, as I told you last time, there's probably no category more destitute than orphans. But as followers of Christ, we're no longer orphans. Now, we put a lot of emphasis around here on the doctrine of justification by faith, and rightly so, but one of the great doctrines of the Christian faith, I think, that is often overlooked and perhaps undersold and not appreciated is the doctrine of adoption. Our adoption into God's family. Because it's that doctrine, the doctrine of adoption to God's family, that helps us relate uh, to the appropriate various aspects of our salvation. It's that doctrine that brings us great comfort and certainty and assurance within our hearts when we realize our position before God, that we are adopted into his family. Romans 8.14 For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The doctrine of adoption. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as a knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that Christ, or everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. He says, Father is the Christian name for God. Isn't that good? Father is the Christian name of God. Adopted into God's family, God's our Father. This is exactly what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 27. The Father himself loves you. Again, Romans 8, 14. All who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. You received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. We are children of God. I mean, again, these wonderful truths are meant to remind us and the disciples to encourage them, to to encourage their hearts in, in the midst of anxiety. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm not leaving you fatherless. And then he says, I'll come to you. Right? It's a promise I told you. Not only is he going to defeat death, therefore they're going to be reunited. These men are going to be reunited with Christ soon. It's again a promise of Christ's spiritual presence in every believer. Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, through the triune, the relationship of the triune God. It's a reaffirmation of the fact that when Christ says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, it actually means, Lo, I am with you Always. So let me ask you a practical theological question. Don't raise your hand, because I don't want to incriminate the guilty. How many times out of your own lip, your own lips, have you ever prayed, Lord, be with me? Lord, be with us. It's a little bit of a head-scratcher. Yeah, I know the truth, but I don't actually speak the truth, and when I'm having a difficulty, I'm not believing the truth because I'm asking for something that God has already promised. You say you're just bantering words. No, I'm not. And you know deep inside your heart, you know I'm not. We forget. Lo, I'm with you always. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Verse 19, after a little while, the Lord will or the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me, and because I live, you shall live also. Again, it's another promise that these men are not going to be permanently separated from Christ. They're going to see him as the resurrected Savior. 
They're going to see that because Christ defeats death, again, visible proof of the reality of who he is, they're going to come to an understanding one day that soon uh, they too will defeat death and be raised because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Another thing the world has no concept of is because Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, guess what? Everybody's coming out of the tomb. Everybody. Some to judgment, some to a resurrection of life. Many, perhaps, to judgment, some to a resurrection of life. Because I live, you'll live. That's the promise of those who are united with Christ. They're going to be spiritually alive. They're going to be uh, in the presence of the resurrected Christ. They're going to be indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit. They're going to be able to perceive spiritual truth, spiritual reality, because of Christ's presence in their life. Verse 20, in that day, again, it's after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes. You shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Again, he's encouraging their hearts. He's telling them what they don't presently understand at the moment. They will very soon. Again, he's speaking of that union of the Godhead, between the members of the Godhead. Again, he's speaking also that staggering reality of his union with them, his union with us. I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you fatherless. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not only he'll be, will, he will be with you, but he'll be in you, and, and I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to live within you forever. And that day, again, the day of Pentecost, you'll understand all this. When uh, the Holy Spirit descends, you'll understand the unity of the Trinity. You'll understand my union with you, the fact that I'll never leave you or forsake you, that you're permanently indwelt by, by the Godhead. And Christ tries to, through the New Testament, tries to give pictures of this union uh, for them to understand. Again, they're not picking it up in part uh, because of where they are uh, chronologically. And again, it's before the day of, uh, of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. But we should start picking some of these up and start understanding this union that we have uh, with Christ. This union we have. Uh, again, uh, not of essence. We're not going to become deity, but it's a relationship unity. Think about in John fifteen five, Jesus says, uh, Jesus uh, says he's the vine and the believers are the what? Branches. There's a union, a life-giving union. We are the body of Christ, which he's the head. We're the bride. He, he is the groom. And Paul's favorite and my favorite, that phrase, in Christ, expresses, again, an understanding of that union we have with him. Romans 8.1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, by his doing you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creature and old things pass away, behold new things uh, have come. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Now again, a lot of people again just think Christianity is about knowing a certain set of facts concerning the Bible, a certain set of facts concerning Christ and history, etc. and so forth. Some people think that Christianity or being religious, I guess, is just taking up a certain moral uh, position on uh, uh, certain issues, standing in opposition to this thing and that thing. But the truth is, again, fundamentally, Christianity is about being in union with God through Jesus Christ and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Christianity is about being in union with the triune God. Christianity is to possess eternal life. And listen, you can't separate eternal life from the one who possesses it. That's why Jesus will say, as we continue our study, John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Because eternal life is about knowing Christ. Eternal life is about knowing God the Father. Eternal life is, by, is about being indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. Again, it's relational. We're brought into union with the Trinity. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Tremendous truth. Encouraging truth. True truth. Well, again, who are these wonderful promises for? These wonderful eternal promises. Who exactly is united with uh, the Godhead? Who is in union with the Godhead? 
Or you could say it a different way. How do you identify a person who's really come into the supernatural union with God? Verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He is the one who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. How do you identify a person who's come in union, true union, supernatural union with God? Obedience. Obedience marks the relationship of a genuine believer. He who has my commandments and keeps them. Now we understand that obedience doesn't earn or gain our eternal salvation by the works of the law. No flesh will be justified in God's sight. Romans 3.20 We understand that salvation is always a gift by God's grace apart from works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3 and others. But the inevitable result of being transformed changed from the inside, regenerated by grace, and developed by the person of the Holy Spirit, is seen by a life marked in obedience. The one who is genuinely saved, the one who truly loves Christ, obeys him. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So again, obedience is, is the best way to determine whom the love of God has been poured out upon. His redemptive love, his reconciling love. Those who truly love the Son, again, are those who obey Him. We speak about this a lot around here. Jesus asked the question, Luke 6 and 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Jesus says, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Genuine transformation of life, genuine love for Christ, motivates us to obey Him. He who has my commandments keeps them. Now, the issue is not so much perfection. It's not perfection, but it's really the direction of one's life. It's not perfection, it's direction. Stop and think about this. I think it's very instructive. In a couple chapters here, we'll get to John 17. But Jesus is praying in John 17, verse 6. And he's praying in reference to these men, these disciples. And he says this, John 17, 6. They have kept or they have obeyed your word. These guys? Uh, these guys that were at the Last Supper arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest and wouldn't wash each other's feet and the Lord knelt down and did that? These guys? Who, who would later deny Christ and all desert from him? Peter who would deny him, Thomas who would doubt his resurrection. Jesus says they've kept your word. Uh, again, he's looking at the overall direction of their lives. He's not looking at perfection. Because deep down in the heart of every genuine believer, there's a steady longing, a yearning to please God, a, a desire to do his will, to walk in full accordance to his word. But there's also a realization that no real Christian fully realizes that desire. I have read Romans 7. If you haven't, you should. Why do I do the things I don't want to do, Paul says. There's this principle there's this, uh, in my flesh, there's this war. The answer is always the person of Jesus Christ. So we turn our attention away from ourselves and we put our attention fully on Christ who stood in our, stood in our place and perfectly obeyed the Father uh, and uh, carried out God's will uh, for us. And we thank the, God that we had that reconciling relationship. It's not perfection, it's direction. But a desire for obedience to be obedient to the Lord is always a legitimate task of whether or not one's profession of faith in Christ and love for him is real. And then he says this, he who keeps my commandment, or he who has my commandments keeps them. He says, it is he who loves me. Then he says this, he who loves me shall be loved by my father. Previously, John 5, 23, Jesus says, he does not honor the son, does not honor the father who sent him. John 15, verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. 1 John 2 and 23, whoever denies the son does not have the father. The one who confesses the father has the son also. 1 John 4 and 14, we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. He's saying, look, the Father and the Son always go together. And if you love Christ, you're going to be loved by the Father. Consequently... 
On the other side, those who hate Christ don't know the Father. Therefore, they're not going to be loved by the Father. Therefore, they don't possess eternal life. Because, again, no one who truly, no one who rejects the person of the Lord Jesus Christ truly knows God, can truly honor God, can truly love God. Because God the Father loves God the Son. And God the Father who loves God the Son out of his love has given his Son to this world. To all the people, you know, or all the worldly religious systems that deny the deity of Christ. And just like people in the world systems that deny a proper understanding of the deity and the personhood of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit, they're all false. False systems who aren't leading you to the truth. They're actually leading you further away from the truth. They're not leading you to eternal life. They're leading you away from eternal life. They're leading you to eternal damnation. John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. God the Father had a son, Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, always go together in truth. Deny one, deny the other. I mean, you heard it, right? People say, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe that Jesus was God. Well, then you're not believing in the God of the Bible, you're believing in a different God. Because the God of the Bible is deity, is the Son of God. It's exactly like his father. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one, who always lies. And you're either following the truth or you're following a liar. The liar has a vast majority of the world deceived and duped because he knows the end of the story. He knows his eternal damnation and his hate for, man's, for mankind, who's God's greatest, greatest creation, is encouraging him always to have people come and not believe the truth, believe a lie. And when you throw objective truth out, as we've done in this culture, that's all that's left. And if there is no God, there's no ultimate authority to which all men are accountable to, then what does it matter how you live? Which is exactly how you see people live. And there's no ultimate authority, or that ultimate authority has been denied. The nations are in a rage. Has anybody else watched the news? Does anybody else see the chaos? Not just on an international level, but on a personal level, because I have a friend I meet with a lot, and I tell him, look, let me tell you where the battle is. It's between your right ear and your left ear. It's your understanding of the truth. It's your submission to the truth. And if you don't know the truth, if this book is like this, up on your shelf, closed, and you never open, you're not going to get it into you. But again, God in his kindness has given to us a history of men who literally have laid down their life, given their lifeblood so that we might have a copy of it, because God wants to be known. God knows how to speak. He understands words. He doesn't stutter. The liar does. If, if if the culture can get, convince you that a, a man is a woman and a man can have a baby, tell me what else is coming. Something like it's okay to murder the child inside your body because it's just a lump of tissue? Something like it's okay to shoot those people in that pit because they didn't follow the the mantra of the regime? You say, well, that'll never happen. Okay. History has a tendency to repeat itself. If there's no standard of truth, the whole thing is chaos on a personal level, a national level, an international level. We're the people of the truth. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose or manifest or reveal myself, show myself to him. Well, how does he do that? How did he do it for the disciples? How does he do it for us? He doesn't do it through some mystical vision or experience or some kind of feeling. He is the truth incarnate. He is the inscripturated word, right? He is the he is the uh, the the word in the flesh. He's telling them the truth. So how does he reveal the truth? He reveals through the to his followers through his word, through his truth. 
Christ reveals himself to us down the road here a little bit, right? And a deeper insight, deeper knowledge of him, again, by his word. And listen, the more we obey him, the more we come to a knowledge of the truth, the more he reveals himself to us. Again, it's not, not mystical. It's not some kind of extra biblical knowledge or experience. It's just a straightforward knowledge of him through his word. And again, you get a greater revelation, a greater disclosure, a greater manifestation, a greater revelation. He says, I will show myself to him. And again, he does it through his word. So again, in the context, Christ is encouraging these guys, look, at the moment, here's the answer. It's always the answer. Trust me. Follow me. Believe. You already believe in God. Believe in me. Same thing for us. He's encouraging us to turn to the scripture. That's where you're going to have comfort for your troubled soul. Trust him. Believe in him. Christ alone, again, and a deeper knowledge of him is the only thing that satisfies in times of great personal difficulty. And I'm telling you, my dear friends, we need to know this book better than we've ever known it. We need to prepare. Prepare for what's coming. Looks like rain on a whole lot of different levels. You read the articles as well as I do. People who stand up and oppose the spirit of the age are persecuted. Prepare for it. Prepare your heart. Prepare your family. Prepare to take your stand on this word. Stop giving in to the lies of the culture. You say, well, that's going to give that's going to cost me, brother. It's going to cost you. I guarantee it's going to cost you. It's going to cost me. It's like it cost our brother Rick and other men before him who took a stand for the truth. Prepare. It's the word. Because nothing more than a deeper understanding of the person of Christ satisfies in a time of great personal difficulties, whatever those difficulties are. Verse 22. Now you'd have to assume that this guy's expressing the bewilderment or the lack of understanding of the entire group when this guy Judas not Iscariot, speaks up. Verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Now, Judas, not Iscariot. Judas is the son of James. It says that in Luke 6, verse 16. Matthew 10, verses, uh, verse 3 says he's also called Thaddeus. Some Greek manuscripts added another name to him, Labius. So I don't know. Maybe he's having a difficulty trying to understand who he is on a personal level, but he's got all these names. Judas, not a scary, want to get that one out of the way, right? Judas is son of James, that is Labius. Judas asks a great question here. Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not the world? Again, the plan of Christ departing imminently or immediately, seemingly, doesn't match up with their understanding of what the Old Testament says concerning the Messiah, who all these men believe him to be. Because, again, the Old Testament teaches very clearly that when Messiah comes, he's going to rule over a literal, physical, earthly kingdom. See Psalm 2. And that's why these guys ask him after the resurrection, just before his ascension, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because, again, the Old Testament predicting a coming, predicted a coming kingdom with the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus Christ has already previously talked about it numerous times. But the, these guys can't see what these disciples couldn't see is the time interval between a first and a second coming. That's why he said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he said, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times of the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. He didn't say there's not going to be a kingdom, an earthly kingdom. He said it's not for you to know. So again, this question, because of the Lord, what, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I mean, because Jesus Christ is the King of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. Uh, he's the rightful heir of the earth, Hebrews chapter 1. He's the Savior of the world. Salvation is to be proclaimed through the entire world uh, through him, Matthew 28. 
So Judas is scratching his head going, how is it you're not going to reveal yourself to everyone? Jesus makes this reply, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him. And we will come to him and we, we will come to him and make our abode with him. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. Again, third time he says, look, uh, a genuine love for me is linked to obedience. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him. Who's the Father going to love? Him. Who's him? The one who keeps the word. God's word. And I think that's important to bring out, because I think in modern evangelicalism, contrary to what the Bible teaches very clearly, and contrary to what generations of Bible-believing Christians have believed and been taught. Today the mantra is God loves everybody. There's a universal love. He loves everybody the same. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Scripture makes it very clear that God has a distinguishing love. And the Scripture doesn't argue the point. For example, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated Scripture doesn't argue the point. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Now, the truth is, the kind of love that is being referred to here is divine electing love. The love of a divine call. The love of divine justification. The love of divine glorification. It's a special redeeming love that belongs to those who are God's people. We don't know who they are by sight. We can't see them, so we just issue the universal invitation, the universal call to all men to come to repentance faith. But if a man loves me, Jesus says, he'll keep my word. Now they become identifiable. Right? That's how you know. They obey the Lord. They, they love the Lord. They're obedient to the call. He who keeps my word, my Father will love him. He will come to, we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. Again, it's God's special, wonderful, electing, eternal love. Again, that love that began before time began, where God determined that he would set his love upon objects of his divine affection. And in time, we appeared, right? God made an eternal decree to set his electing love on a certain people. In time, we appeared. Then God carried that divine, eternal intention out in time. He brought us, all of us who are believers in the room, he brought us by way of providence in contact with the activity of the Holy Spirit. And the moment we came in contact with the activity of the Holy Spirit, the moment we came in contact with the truth, we repented by grace, repent and place our faith in Christ, turn away from our sins, trusting not in our own work, our own righteousness, our, stole, our souls became alive. God's plan in eternity worked out in time through the person of the Holy Spirit who draws us to the Savior, who draws us to the shed blood of the one who stands at Calvary's cross on our behalf. The eternal redeeming plan where he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. That's the kind of love he's speaking about here. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode or our home with him. Again, it's the promise of the Trinity indwelling the believer, the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why the scripture calls us the temple of the Holy God, right? The, the temple of the living God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Him you have from God, that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. That's why uh, a life of ongoing habitual sin is so out of place in, in the life of a believer, especially sexual sin. You, you've been united with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't go out and, and, and join yourself to a harlot. The Spirit of God dwells within you. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode or our home with him. Again, it's the promise of the Trinity, the presence of God. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He who does not love me does not keep my word. Again, that connection between genuine love and obedience. And Jesus is not going to make himself known 
to the disobedient. He's not going to make himself known to those who reject him, to those who don't love him. He's not going to make himself known to the worldly who don't want him, who reject him, who reject the Father, who reject his word. Because when men reject him, they are actually rejecting the Father. That's what Christ says. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So again, Christ is not going to manifest himself or reveal himself to an unbelieving, unloving, God-hating world. But he will to us. He will to us. Those who have been the objects of his great mercy and who have responded by faith and are not perfect, but the bent of our life is obedience. And again, when Christ makes that statement there, the, the word you hear from me is not my not mine, but my father's against another claim to authority. Another claim, obviously, to deity. And the truth is, again, he says, look, if you reject my word, you're rejecting God. You're rejecting God himself. You're rejecting his word. Because Jesus had repeatedly said over and over again, he came from the Father. Come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. I don't ask of my own. I judge, uh, and my my judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He just said it over and over again. And of course, there's no conflict between the the will of the Father and the will of Christ, but throughout his ministry, he repeatedly emphasized the fact that he uh, he was working on the Father's authority, in accordance with the Father's will, the one who sent him into the world. Then verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding or or yet present or still with you. I have spoken these things while with you. Verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It's a wonderful truth again concerning the person of the Holy Spirit who uh, the Father is going to send to teach these men and women and us the truth, followers of the truth. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who comes and indwells the, the believer and illuminates the word to us. He guides us in our pursuit of uh, the truth of the word of God. Uh, he teaches us of conviction of, of sin. He, he affirms God's truth in our heart. He opens our understanding and ever-growing, deepening understanding of the truth as the Holy Spirit continues to reveal what God says to us. Right? He's the one who brings uh, uh, the appropriate verse to our mind at the right time and so that we can remember it. And also in that text is really the promise of the Holy Spirit to come to bring remembrance to these men specifically. He's saying, look, uh, you're going to remember everything that I wrote or everything that I said because you're going to write it down. It's going to become inscripturated. I'm going to give the person of the Holy Spirit to call to your memory everything that I said. You're going to write it down. And when you record scripture, I'll ensure that it's perfect without error. It really is the promise of divine inspiration. So as I said at the top of the hour, there's a lot here. And, and, and as deep as you might think we're going, I tell you what, we're just kind of flying over the surface. There's a lot in this text of scripture. It's just a wonderful point of truth. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for that wonderful truth of your word and so thankful that uh, you have revealed it to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thankful, Lord, that you have uh, saved us and dwelt within us and help us to believe that truth on a practical level, to realize that we're never alone. What amazing truth. Help us to live accordingly. Help us to be committed to speaking truth to ourselves and not listening to ourselves. Help us to do that for our friends all around us. Come alongside when we are struggling and say, Oh, brother, let me tell you, the, not just of the redeeming love of Christ and Calvary, but let me encourage you that Christ is in you. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. How can we together approach him and deal with the issue that you're facing? Because, again, we're reminded that the distance between heaven and earth is closed instantaneously by prayer, and you've given us that great privilege to come into your presence. What a wonderful God you are. We love you, we adore you, and thank you for your truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.